Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest on today's episode is Michael Ewald, the Global Head of Private Credit at Bain Capital Credit, and he's here to talk about COVID's impact on the private credit asset class. Michael, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here, Katie. In response to COVID, we've seen traditional banks pull back and really tighten their lending standards. What has that looked like for private credit? How has the asset class responded to the COVID crisis over the last six months? Sure. Look, I think that's definitely true during COVID, although I would also argue that banks have been pulling back a little bit longer than that. And so in response to that, you've seen a lot of private credit firms in some cases get started, in other cases just go out and fundraise. And so in a sense, we've been prepared uh, with capital for something like COVID um, should the banks pull back even further uh, as they have. Uh, in terms of focus, though, I would say, uh, probably not surprisingly, through the first phase of the pandemic, kind of more or less in, in Q2 of this year, we were all I think, really focused on our own portfolio companies uh, and making sure that they were in a good position to start from. And then what we started to see was some growth within those existing portfolio companies where they were taking advantage of the pandemic by trying to bolt on some acquisitions and some tuck-ins here or there. And as lenders, those companies were able to support that too. Um, lately, in the past couple of months, I think it's been nice to see some new deal flow again, where new platform transactions are actually happening. So it goes beyond your current portfolio where you're actually able to add to it. And as I mentioned, that there's been enough fundraising in the space so that capital is available to, to, to take advantage of those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And for you and your team at, at Bain Capital Credit, have you adjusted your strategy at all throughout this crisis? Yeah, it's a fair question. Um, interestingly enough, not too much. I mean, if you think about where we were, at least within Bain Capital uh, Credit, call it a year ago, even two years ago, we were probably a little bit early to say that the economy might slow down at some point. You know, the late innings of the credit cycle, I think was a buzzword around the beginning of this year, but we were saying that a year or two ago. So even back then, we were starting to focus more on what we would call defensive industries, um, things like healthcare, technology, business services, which should fare well in a recessionary type environment, uh, regardless of what else is going on. And so having been focused on that, our portfolio was actually in relatively good shape coming into uh, the pandemic here, but also the pandemic itself effectively was a trigger for that recessionary environment. And so our outlook hasn't changed from that perspective, but we're still very focused on certain defensive industries that we think can do well, not regardless of how the economy is doing, but certainly not track the economies closely as something like an industrial might, um, or something that's much more tied to consumer uh, consumer consumption and things like that. Mm-hmm. And are you, are you seeing any sort of trend back toward the adoption of more safety measures to protect lenders in the form of covenants or other types of protections? Yeah, we, we definitely are. Uh, and I think it's a matter of degrees, really, because you could still find, and certainly that's something that we put a, um, a lot of weight on, was finding transactions and deals with covenants even, even before COVID. And I think What's been nice is they have they have acted as they should and that they are a governor on companies whose performance might be tailing off. So you have a conversation. It's, it's not the end all and be all of a company. We're not going to go take it over necessarily right away, but at least you're having a conversation about what's going on. So introducing more covenants is certainly, I think, a side benefit than uh, of COVID. And I think in general, documentation moving more lender friendly has certainly been uh, an outcome of late. There are technical things like restricted payments baskets that are tighter, anti-layering protections that are more in place now, meaning the company can't put other debt on on the company either ahead of you or or, or, uh, next to you. Those sorts of protections are definitely there. 
Um, I think also from a headline perspective, though, we've seen pricing come up, uh, depending on where you're on the capital structure, it could be 100, 150 basis points over where they would have been pre-COVID. Um, you've also seen leverage come down, uh, maybe half a turn or, or a full turn of EBITDA. And so those have all been nice trends. I would just caution, though, that there hasn't been a whole lot of deal activity where these uh, trends have actually become concrete, if you will, in terms of new transactions. So that's certainly what the pitch activity is like right now. Um, but because there haven't been that many new deals, it's hard to see you know, just how long long term of a trend that will be. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, the communication, you know, that that you're having with borrowers. How have you and your team at Bain worked with private equity sponsors throughout this crisis? What were you looking for from them in the way of communication or equity infusions into their companies, for example? Yeah, you know, it, it's um, it pains me to say this, but uh, I would say the private equity sponsors actually responded, you know, overall pretty well to uh, to the crisis. And what I mean by that is a couple of things. One is they were generally uh, all fairly communicative around the end of uh, end of March as we were going into some of the uncertainty. Um, they worked very hard with with their management teams to get new forecasts in place to try to understand what the impact could be. And uh, they also worked to cut costs with, with their respective companies in order to maintain liquidity so that every company could effectively live to fight another day. And um, those are the sorts of things that we're certainly looking for. We want that open and honesty because at the end of the day, it shouldn't be an adversarial relationship uh, with the lenders per se. You know, it should be more of a partner relationship, at least in our minds. And so those sponsors that treated as such, I think we had actually pretty good uh, relationships with during, during the course of the pandemic. And we also held hands and figured out what the right solution was. And if there was a covenant to fall, well, let's talk about it. What, you know, what should we replace that with? Should we put in a liquidity covenant instead? Are you the sponsor putting money in? Should we um, just stand pat for a quarter or two? Should we take some additional rate? So those are the sorts of conversations that we were having. Notably, though, there were definitely some sponsors who were keeping things very tight to the vest, who um, set up some pretty draconian scenarios and said, well, look, this company's going to blow up like next week if you guys don't put money into it. And our kind of response to that was, well, you're the owners, you're the ones that should be putting the money into it. And so they did run the gamut a little bit, but I would say the the overwhelming majority of sponsors were more of that first bucket, really, uh, than that second bucket. So the lesson there is uh, don't try to back your lender into a corner. <laughs> I think that's right. And look, I mean, we, we saw some similar behavior back in 2008, 2009. Um, you know, many of us, certainly we at Bank Capital Credit, me personally, have been doing this for a long time. And so we have memories that go back that far. Um, and there are definitely some sponsors coming out of that that last major crisis that we've decided we just won't work with anymore because of how they you know, treated us as lenders and, and, and how they didn't communicate with us and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think you know, you'll probably see a, a similar phenomenon coming out of this uh, crisis as well. Mm-hmm. And to that end, are there any other long-term changes in terms of how private equity sponsors work with their lenders that you foresee coming out of this? <laughs> I, uh, I certainly hope so. Uh, it would be great if this is a, a new dawn of open and honest communication, but um, you know, we'll, we'll see how fleeting it ends up being. You know, I, I think uh, as much as I appreciate and, and we appreciate their efforts in trying to keep us up to speed, my hope is that the sponsors also appreciate that, that we weren't trying to be vultures or something, trying to take over companies, um, and that we we're you know, happy to work with them if it was more of that partnership kind of model. So I hope that that, that sort of positive feeling, if you will, carries forward because there'll inevitably be another crisis, right? So um, I think it's much easier and better for all of us if we can be more partnership oriented there. Mm -hmm. And in terms of you and your team at Bain, um, you know, you mentioned learning lessons through the the last recession. Is there anything that you've experienced through this one that you'll take with you going forward? 
Yeah, you know, that, that's that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think it has proven that our approach to ensure we have covenants is an important one because the extent you don't have covenants, you know, a company could end up running into liquidity problems pretty quickly and you can't act. And meantime, management teams and private equity sponsors might be incented to effectively swing for the fences because they might be underwater uh, to a certain degree, right? So that can lead to some adverse consequences if it doesn't actually work. And so I think if anything else, our focus on, on covenants, we've got covenants in something like 85% of our transactions has proven to us um, th that those things actually do work. And there is a reason to have those because at the end of the day, th these are not liquid securities. We can't just trade out of a company if we don't think it's doing well or the management team's not doing the right thing because there's no one to trade to. And so having that governor on performance is exceedingly important. That was definitely a lesson that we've learned here. Private credit has historically performed well coming out of a downturn. Do you expect that to be the case this time around too? Yeah, you know, we talked about some of the, the trends earlier in terms of lower leverage, higher pricing, tighter documentation. I think those are all good things to take advantage of coming out of a crisis. So I think that drives a lot of that outperformance coming out, especially on the pricing perspective. I think the, the, the one caveat or the one watch out there is just timing. Because what you don't want to do is start loosening some of those proverbial reins um, too soon. And I think it's certainly still too soon to tell with this pandemic. Uh, and we've got ex extraordinarily high unemployment still. We saw some new numbers recently. And so um, getting that timing right is important and not getting too exuberant too quickly, I think. And if we don't do that, I think it will be some pretty pretty exciting return levels coming out of, a, out of a crisis like this, like we've seen in past uh, situations. Mm -hmm. And do you see any any new opportunities coming out of this? I mean, you mentioned earlier uh, that you came into this crisis with positions in pretty defensive industries and that you've continued to, to invest in those spaces. Um, are there other industries you're looking at that you see as, you know, having real potential coming out of this? Yeah, the um, you know, cer certainly some of those more defensive ones will be good. I think the other huge impact we've seen with COVID is really anything that relates to gatherings of people, right? So um, travel is the obvious one, but certainly anything in the entertainment realm is going to be pretty heavily impacted for a while too. So going back to my earlier point about timing, if you can find the right entry point uh, for some of those, because they've gotten up beaten up pretty badly, that, then you, um, I think that there's some some significant opportunities there. Uh, travel certainly one where um, you know, the, the face of, of entertainment might change, and we're seeing that now with um, you know, social media and TikTok and all those sorts of things. Right, the way people consume entertainment is different. Travel, you know, until they get the transporter thing that Star Trek had, we're, we're going to need to travel to get to places, right, uh, for work, for pleasure, for everything else. And so, I think once. I guess humankind really, right, is comfortable traveling again uh, on a larger scale. I think there's going to be some great opportunities in the travel space, be it agencies, be it airlines, be it, you know, anything that caters to at hotels, et cetera. And so um, that's something that we're certainly keeping an eye on uh, and that we're somewhat bullish about a little bit further on, just not yet. And you mentioned unemployment a moment ago and how we're seeing, you know, jobs come back, but maybe not at the pace that uh, some were hoping for. So as you look at the market and the economy today, what are the concerns that you that you have and what are you keeping a close eye on? What's been surprising uh, to me and, and to us generally has been the degree to which the equity markets have really rallied back uh, and almost like, hey, everything's fine. Um, and even the public debt markets too. And um, that does concern me. And certainly there's technicals involved there. 
which as a private market participant, I can't begin to, to necessarily fully appreciate and understand, but it still gives you the sense that we'll use the economies back and everything will be fine. I am a little bit more worried about some, some systemic unemployment that's going to linger for a while, you know, especially around some of these entertainment or anything group focused uh, out there. So uh, at some point, um, stimulus is going to, it's certainly slowing down now. Uh, there hasn't been new talk about a whole lot of stimulus in the U.S., at least recently. We'll see if anything changes now. And so that's going to run out. And at the end of the day, consumer sentiment is going to fall. And consumer sentiment is certainly something we follow because something like two-thirds of the U.S. economy is based on consumer spending. And coming into now something like the holiday season, it's going to be interesting to see how that translates. And that's going to have ripple effects throughout the economy beyond the unemployment if people aren't spending as much money as they have. You know, we've had one and a half arguably rounds of stimulus spending that's kind of helped prop things up, but that's starting to run out now. So that is something that concerns me from a consumer spending, consumer sentiment perspective. So I want to close by asking you about uh, ESG. On top of COVID this year, there's been renewed attention to climate change, thanks to some of the major storms we've seen, the fires in California and on the West Coast, as well as social justice issues. Has that changed or deepened Bain's commitment to ESG and how you factor environmental, social, and governance considerations when you're looking at new opportunities? Sure. So, you know, there's a couple of things there. You know, one is um, I think recent events have, have definitely focused on um, ESG concerns, focused on social justice concerns, which I think is a good thing because I think we're probably underperforming as an industry, you know, as a society probably on a lot of these things, right? So. Um, having that focus there, I think, is going to be helpful. I think the level of dialogue around all those issues has, has definitely been elevated. And the call to change has really been elevated there as well. So I, I think that's all good news. Uh, all those areas actually have been areas of consideration for us for, for a while now. And they, they're baked into our diligence process, our sourcing process, how we monitor things anyway. Um, having said that, you know, as you point out, that there's been a, there's been a renewed focus on that. And so what we've done at Bank Capital anyway is within different business units, we actually have ESG analysts specifically focused on, on that aspect. We also um, recently hired a global head of, of ESG who, whose um, remit includes not just our own policies and procedures and diligence processes and all the rest, but also what's going on in our portfolio companies. I think the, the, the bit where we have to be a bit careful within Bank Capital anyway is there's almost two sides of the house, right? There, there's one that is uh, investing in and, and, and buying companies where there's a little bit more uh, ability to, to influence change at the portfolio companies. And there's something like the credit business where we're investing in the companies. So it's almost more of a binary decision. Are they following proper protocols? Is it enough? And then, you know, okay, we feel comfortable doing that. But we can't actually force change necessarily within those companies going forward. So that is the one thing we're struggling with. And we're trying to make sure that um, as we go in, the company's got a pretty good head start on some of these issues. And, and it's certainly something we talk about with private equity sponsors. Uh, on the social justice piece, I think that's a little bit different. And that's certainly one where as an industry, as a firm, I think, as, again, as a society, we're probably uh, well behind where we should be. Again, increased dialogue, increased calls to action certainly help. But I think you have to back that up with, with actions, too. And so if you look at Bank Capital uh, specifically, you may have seen that we recently announced that we, the partnership, have committed $100 million over the next 10 years to social justice initiatives. So it's everything from promoting economic development in, um, in the city of Boston you know, to other things like supporting the Equal Justice Initiative and, and other organizations like that that, that focus on and, and fight for social justice. Even just outside of that, we uh, raised a COVID relief fund 
from the partnership, uh, the $240 million, uh, going back about six months now. 35 million of the 40 has already been spent uh, or committed uh, in the local communities where bank capital has offices. So um, we certainly as a firm take it very seriously, you know, as a partnership, still, you know, I think we're probably the largest alternative asset manager that's still a privately managed partnership. Um, we're able to have some of those conversations pretty closely internally and able to have that call for action um, uh, and really put our, uh, uh, put our proverbial you know, money where our mouths are. Great. Well, we'll leave it there. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Happy to do it, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.